The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church in Ackerman, Mississippi. We invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For more information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org. I'd ask you to turn to Matthew chapter 18. We tried to consider the first portion of this chapter in Matthew 18 together last time, and there was just so much content in there uh, that I still missed a lot that I intended to address. So I want to kind of uh, briefly go back over the first portion of that as we make our way back up to the parable of the unforgiving servant. So beginning in Matthew 17, we find that Jesus is in Peter's house in Capernaum. And the disciples are there in Peter's house in Capernaum. And they have some discussion about taxes and some other things at the conclusion of that chapter. And then at the beginning of chapter 18, um, we find in other gospel accounts that this is one of the times that the apostles had been arguing among themselves which of them would be the greatest in the kingdom. They wanted the authority, uh, probably, I know I'm assuming a little bit, but probably so they could tell the other ones what to do. Surprise, surprise, there was a little bit of a personality conflict among the preachers and them trying to jockey for position and wanting to have a little bit more uh, influence to where someone has to do what I tell them to do because Jesus gave them the the title of being the vice president in his kingdom. So they were jockeying for position who is the greatest in the kingdom. And I love the the intimacy of this uh, picture right here uh, that as these prideful men that have been chosen by the Lord, they're exhibiting pride. Jesus picks up this little bitty child as the example of humility. But what I want you to see here, first of all, is that um, as they were spending time with Jesus and, and in that day, in Jesus' day and in the days of the Acts of the Apostles, they worshiped in their homes. They didn't have a designated location for public worship, but what they didn't do is say, okay, Jesus is in the room. Now all the little children, you go play outside, you go play with toys, you know, you, you separate yourself from the preaching of the word, separate yourself from Jesus. I love that at Jesus' presence, there are little children running all around the house, right? And that's one of the reasons that we hold a family integrated worship, right? And so that all the family worships together. And when Jesus came into Peter's house in Capernaum, they didn't say, okay, now the adults are going to talk and then children, you go in the other room. No, there was children right there. And I love just how these children were just running around being kids. And then Jesus picks up this little bitty child and puts the child in his lap and says, Verily I say unto you, to the apostles directly, but certainly it applies to us today as well. Verily I say unto you, except you be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So, 
Apostles, you're trying to become the greatest in the kingdom. Well, the way to the top is to put yourself at the bottom. The way to be the greatest in the kingdom is to be the servant of all, to be the servant of the rest of the people in the church. Now, the picture I want you to have here, as he goes through uh, verse 20, as he's giving these admonitions, I, I love the picture that Jesus is, is delivering this message with this child still sitting on his lap, okay? So with this child still sitting on his lap, he says, but whosoever shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he were drowned in the sea. Woe unto the world because of offensive. It, it must needs be that offenses will come, but woe to that man by whom he cometh. And then he gets more direct in verse 15. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. And if he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. And this is the principle for us in the kingdom of heaven and the church to reconcile interpersonal offenses. But... Let's not miss the immediate application. When we read the Word of God, it always has an immediate application to the people in that time, but then there is another implication and lesson for us. But it is evident that there was legitimate trespasses even among the 12 apostles that they were not dealing with properly, right? He says, moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee. Now, it is inevitable, we find that in verse 7, that offenses will come in the kingdom. But just because it's inevitable doesn't mean that we should not be vigilant for, to particularly uh, control our actions, particularly control our tongue. Uh, when I did a um, topical summary of the book of Proverbs, and we th went through that on a Bible study um, recently, um, grouping, you know, the book of Proverbs is, the Holy Spirit is not sporadic, but it appears to us to jump around a lot, uh, so it's, it's helpful to kind of group those things in topics, and as I did that, it is just amazing to, to look at the quantity of verses that deal with all these different topics and how many verses deal with the tongue and with speech and with gossip and with what Proverbs calls whispering. And it's inevitable that offenses will come, but boy, it is doubly inevitable that offenses will come by our speech, right? Because the, the tongue, James chapter 3 warns about that, right? It, it's a, it's a, uh, a, a little bitty fire that can spark uh, a great wildfire, uh, the tongue, uh, the natural tongue in and of ourselves, no man can tame, right? Now, by the Spirit of God, we can control it and we can uh, use it in such a way where it ministers grace to the hearers, but it is inevitable with uh, a bunch of sinners in the same location at the same time, and as much as we try to walk in the Spirit, inevitably, we're going to get in the flesh a little bit, and even if we're not... Uh, in the flesh, per se, um, we're inevitably just going to say something that somebody takes wrong. I mean, that's inevitable in life. And if it's inevitable in life, it's certainly inevitable in the church and in the kingdom. 
But I would encourage you to be very vigilant about uh, controlling your tongue and controlling your speech because there's so much destruction, but there's also so much uh, blessing that can come from your tongue. It says that in Proverbs, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Your tongue can be a tremendous blessing. Now, the way that we communicate is different with everyone in the church and everyone in life. And it's very good for us to understand that. It's very good for us to understand that. At work, uh, we did some uh, leadership training and I took a personality test, Myers-Briggs. also did some other classes that was a DISC profile, D-I-S-C profile. One that's become very popular in Christian circles is the Enneagram. And they're all kind of telling you the same thing which is that you take this, you ask, answer questions, and how would you respond in this situation? What do you think about this? And, and what's your perspective on all this stuff? <clears throat> and the point there is to understand how you communicate, okay? That's step number one, is to understand how you communicate. But probably what's more important is for you to have a, an understanding that different people with different personality types and with different uh, natural communication uh, habits, they send information differently and they receive information differently. And you have to make the effort to talk their language and to communicate with them, okay? Um, it's very, same is true, same principle is true with the love languages. This is very important in relationships and in marriages, you may have seen this, that your natural disposition is to display love in a certain way. So you may express love through acts of service and you say, look, look at all of this stuff that I've done for you. Well, that's good, you need to do that. That's your natural disposition to do that, but you also need to understand that other people receive information in a different way and if their primary uh, love language is words of affection, so, so I look at all this stuff I did for you, but you're not affirming that with words of, of affirmation. You're talking the wrong language and they're not receiving it, okay? So you need to be aware of the fact that people are different. Is that, is that groundbreaking this morning? <laughs> people are different, right? People communicate differently and we send information differently and we receive information differently. And that applies in many different ways. You need to be aware of that, that your natural disposition may be to communicate something in this way, but with my understanding of their personality type and also my years of interaction with them, I know that I have to get out of my comfort zone and, to, and express that in a different way. And there's some people that, re, that receive uh, information in a much more emotional way. You know, people like me, I gravitated toward accounting. I'm data-driven, okay? Uh, and that is how I send and receive information. But other people, uh, you know, I can't, uh, I'm, it's not gonna make much sense to some people when the basis of my decision is spreadsheets and numbers, you know? No, I have to communicate differently if people receive information differently. And you need to be aware of that. You need to be aware of that. The reason why I'm saying all that is because those are natural differences and many of those different personality types, they gravitate 
towards certain professions, and they also gravitate towards certain spiritual gifts in the church too. And that's good. That's good, isn't it? That God has given us a diversity of spiritual gifts, and that's all good. But inevitably, when people communicate differently and they have different mindsets and they have different, uh, different um, priorities, inevitably, no one's doing anything wrong. No one's being sinful. But you're just going to have a little bit of natural friction because people are different, okay? And that's just life. That's life. Now, what do you do with that? Uh, we, need to, we need to extend as much grace and charity as possible in those circumstances. Now, it says, if a, more, if a brother shall trespass against thee. Now, he says, look, you need to go talk to him individually, talk to him yourself, and then... If you can't reconcile it, if he won't repent, and he's in the wrong and he won't repent, you need to take two or three people with you. Then, if, if he won't deal with that, then you take it to the church. Now, if this is just a, a verbal misunderstanding, I mentioned this last time, and this is not based on a study. This is just based on, on life experience uh, that I've seen. If you communicate with that person directly, I think you will find that probably 80% of the time it's just a miscommunication. I understood it. I, 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 I perceived your tone incorrectly. I thought that you meant this, and then let me explain myself. Oh, wait a minute. That's not what you meant? Oh, great. You know, the situation is reconciled, and, and then you move on. But this is a legitimate trespass. I mean, someone stole from you. Someone lied to you. Someone spread a, a false rumor about, well, you need to deal with those situations and go talk to them and if they're unrepentant you need to take two or three people with you but if but if on the front end if you would be a little bit embarrassed to have two or three people come and sit down with you and you explain the whole situation to them and say they are in the wrong and they need to repent some things are so trite and trivial that it would be foolish to get other people involved and if that if that is the case then we need to forgive them for Christ's sake and move on, okay? Forgive them for Christ's sake and move on. But there are legitimate offenses, legitimate offenses. And if there is, then you need to talk with them directly. When this trespass occurs, you don't go and tell other people about it. You don't tell a third party who then tells another party who tells another party, and then all of a sudden a rumor has started and all this other stuff. You don't tell someone else. You go talk to them directly, and you solve the issue with them directly. And if they won't hear you, you bring two or three people with you to have independent parties to verify this is everything that was said on this side, this is everything that was said on this side, to where it's not he said, she said. No, you have to have independent parties. And then if they still won't, repent, if they still won't uh, acknowledge that they're in the wrong, then you take it beyond just two or three people and you bring the whole church into it to where they can then verify that they're in the wrong. Okay, so then if you bring it before the church and the church says, you are clearly in the wrong, you need to repent, and they say, I will not repent, then let him be, verse 17, let him be unto thee. Those are the most important words in that phrase. Let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a 
publican. This is the this is talking about interpersonal reconciliation of offenses. And if someone offends you and you can't reconcile with them, then in your personal relationship with them, you back away. You back away. Now, what normally happens, unfortunately, because we're sinners and this is the way we operate, there's no new thing under the sun, is that people want to start making sides and saying, well, if, uh, if you... If you still talk to them, then that means you're taking their side. And if you're on their side, then you're not on my side. This is dealing with your interactions with them individually. Okay? And if you feel the need to remove close fellowship with them, you do that. But you also do are not uh, allowed to impose your determination on everyone else you know. Okay? I think a, a very good example of conflict that initially was not reconciled that necessitated a backing away of fellowship but still the right disposition and still the right love and willingness to help them in a time of need. I think a great example of that is Abraham and Lot in the Old Testament. You remember that their uh, herdmen were striving together. They were, uh, Lot was Abraham's nephew, and there was conflict. There was strife among the herdmen, and if there were strife among the herdmen, uh, inevitably there would be strife among them as well, competing uh, businesses, business interests. So, so then Abraham, being the, the good godly man that he was, he said, look, we're, we're brethren, okay? We don't need to fuss and fight like this. I tell you what, I will defer to you. You take any land that you want. You look out over all of this and you take, and then we know the bad decision that Lot made. He, the, the land of Sodom and Gomorrah, and that plain looked really good for his, for, his, uh, for his livestock and grazing, and then he chose to go that way. Uh, but Abraham said, okay, we don't need to strive like this. But I'm seeing enough conflict that we need to separate proximity. We need to separate location. But Abraham didn't hold any animosity toward Lot, did he? No, he was all the time getting Lot out of trouble. You remember they had this this uh, this war, and then they kidnapped Lot, and then he gets his hired servants, trained servants. They go and they rescue Lot, and then uh, right before uh, God's about to uh, destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, I mean, Lot was right in there with them. I mean, uh, most likely, I, I don't tend to think, uh, uh, since God has the people of every nation, kindred people and tongue, I mean, there, there were probably other people just like Lot. Uh, children of God that were just like Lot that were sitting in Sodom that had just got so, their conscience had got so seared with the hot iron and they were going along to get along. I mean, I don't think Lot was the only child of God in Sodom, most likely. But they, they'd become so sinful, the Lord decided he was going to burn them up. But So I say that to say that I think that if Abraham had not interceded for Lot, I think the Lord probably would have been okay with just burning him up because he was just as guilty as all the rest of them. He was unwilling to repent. His righteous soul vexed him from day to day, but he was unwilling to make any changes. You want to know the reason why, when I believe, why God sent some angels into Sodom to get Lot? It's because in the previous chapter, Abraham asked him to. That's the main reason that Lot even got out was not because of him. 
He wasn't willing to repent. He wasn't willing to change his lifestyle. And instead, he was more than happy to be a ruler in the gate and, and have all the prosperity that went along with being a prominent figure there inside him. Uh, Lot didn't want to repent, and he didn't even want to go. He didn't even want to go. The, the angel had to drag him out. He didn't even want to leave. The only reason, I believe, to a large degree, why the Lord even saved Lot was because of Abraham. Because Abraham loved him and he prayed for him. So I think that is a great example that they, these people do not become our mortal enemy. <laughs> no, we separate fellowship. But, you know, we still, love for, we still love them. We still pray for them. And you know what? When they're in a real pinch, when they, when they get kidnapped by, by kings and they're about to die, to the best of our ability, we, we try to help them. And he went and he rescued him. Okay? So... This is not your excuse to have a personal vendetta against this person for the rest of your life. This is forgiving them for Christ's sake, but there is a time for removing close fellowship. Okay? And these people, it, d it doesn't hit quite as, quite as home to us, but when he says let him be as a heathen man and a publican or a Gentile and a publican, you would not be seen dead with a publican. Okay? In this day, you wouldn't be seen dead with a, with a Gentile. No, if I see them over there, I'm walking on the other side of the street. I'm, I'm, now, I'm not saying that was right, but that's just the way it was. They knew what it meant. I'm not going to be seen in close fellowship with a Gentile or Republican, which, by the way, isn't it so beautiful that that was the general disposition of the way that publicans were treated? And then when, uh, when Jesus called uh, Matthew, uh, from the receipt of custom, he immediately went into the publican's house to have dinner with him. And that's when Jesus got the title of being the friend of publicans and sinners. And aren't you glad that he's the friend of publicans and sinners? Amen? Uh, that, that he can love people that, that the rest of the world would look down on. Okay, verse 19. Now, he's, I want you to understand, he's talking directly to these apostles. Now, it applies to us, and this is how we need to deal with interpersonal conflict, but it is evident that there was some major dissension, some major strife among these 12 apostles. Again, I say unto you, you apostles, that if any two of you, you see, any two of you, and, and it sure seems like since Peter comes to him right after, it, Peter was at least one half of this problem, okay? If any two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. Wherefore, uh, if two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Now, Old Baptist, we've used that as a verse to justify our small congregations. Now, God doesn't ex expect, uh, God doesn't intend for us to only have two or three people in worship. Our churches should be thriving. Our, our buildings should be overflowing. But aren't you glad that if God is gracious to manifest his presence in a special way when we're reconciling interpersonal conflict, how much more so will he manifest his presence when we're worshiping him in spirit and in truth, right? And we are thankful for that, amen? That God, if he's gracious to manifest his presence in, in a, a tense challenging situation like inter, uh, like reconciling interpersonal conflict, then obviously when we all uh, approach the Lord with one accord and in unity of the Spirit and to worship Him in spirit and in truth, He's going to manifest His presence there with us. And we are very thankful for that. Okay, so now we've arrived 
at the parable of the unforgiving servant. Okay, now, understand, everything up to this point, Jesus had been delivering this pretty scathing rebuke to the apostles uh, with the little child on his lap. And it appears that Peter probably came to him later. This is a conversation. This parable wasn't to everyone else. It was just to Peter because it says, and then Peter came to him. So Peter came to him privately. It's in his house. So everyone else goes to bed and Peter comes to him after that, most likely. And Peter came to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him till seven times, till seven times. Now, um, Peter was being very generous when he allowed seven times to be forgiven in that general Jewish culture of that day because in first century Judea with the Pharisees having manipulated and contorted the word of God, the general idea in the Jewish culture at this time was that I only have to forgive somebody maximum of three times, and on the fourth time, I have the right to exact judgment. Now, where they get that from is from the book of Amos, and it may take you longer to turn there and find it than we're going to spend there, but it's after Joel, if you want to try. Uh, in Amos, this is the language that he uses eight different times talking about judgments of all these different nations. Amos chapter 1 and verse 3. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. And he says that about Damascus and Gaza and Tyrus and Edom and Ammon and Moab. And then in chapter 2 and verse 4 and 6, he makes his way to Judah and Israel. Okay, So he says this eight times. And he looks at these nations and he says, you are disobeying my law. God is holy and he's righteous and he's not going to wink at sin for forever. And praise God, he's long-suffering, but he's not going to ignore uh, breaking his holy law for forever. So the Lord looks at these sinful nations and says, okay, I'm giving you a chance to repent. I'm giving you a chance to repent. I'm sending a prophet. I'm sending a word of the Lord telling you to repent. And there's going to come a time what he calls the fourth time, where I'm going to send judgment. And that's the Lord's right to do that, isn't it, right? Uh, he's, he's right to send, send judgment after the first uh, call to repentance. But God is long-suffering, so he says, all right, I'm going to give you a space for repentance, but there's going to come a period of time where strike number four, if you will, then I'm going to bring judgment. And of course, the Pharisees, boy, they love this because did, didn't just the Lord didn't just say it one time. He said it eight times. So clearly that means that we have the right to act just like the Lord. Clearly that means that since the Lord holds uh, is going to hold nations accountable after four transgressions and he's going to bring judgment, then obviously we have the right to hold a brother that is offended against me to the to the uh, and act the exact same way that the Lord acts toward these nations. Boy, don't you know the Pharisees loved that. Some stuff they just kind of made up out of thin air. But they have eight verses to back this up in the book of Amos, right? So they love this. They love this. And but don't you know the way as legalistic as the Pharisees were? Boy, they they had a tally for everybody, <laughs> and they were waiting for number four. 
they were waiting for number four to come around uh, so they could call you up uh, on uh, probably before the Sanhedrin to be, I mean, maybe even be stoned for stuff. So understand, the general uh, idea in the Jewish culture in this day was that you only have to forgive somebody three times, and on the fourth one, you can drop judgment on them, okay? So when Peter says, am I willing, uh, do I have to forgive my brother seven times, understand he's doing double what the general culture in that day would allow. He's being very generous. We would look at seven and be like, you know, Peter, you're, you're just trying to, you know, get out of forgiving people. He was being very generous, okay? And Jesus says, I say unto you, not until seven times, but until 70 times seven. And that equals 490. Um, and if you're looking for strike number 491, you've really been missing the boat for a long time, all right? If, you, if, if you've been keeping tally marks uh, up to 490, you wanting to reach that limit, uh, you've really missed the boat, okay? The idea here is that you forgive perpetually. And uh, I saw a quote from uh, C.S. Lewis, very good Christian author, uh, author of Mere Christianity, The Four Loves, Chronicles of Narnia. Be, be great for you to read him. Uh, but I think this is really on point in one of, some of his writings. He said, it might be necessary for you to forgive 490 times for the same offense the same offense. Now, if if someone is uh, perpetually doing things that is a legitimate trespass against you, that puts you in danger, that slander you, etc., etc., you know, after like time twenty or thirty, you probably should be picking up on a pattern here and. Maybe start saying, I may not need to spend as much time with this person, right? Uh, after, you're, after, after these numbers start getting a little bigger um, and they continually are spreading gossip, they are continually trying to steal you. I mean, whatever the trespass is, if they're continually doing this stuff, you need to look at that and be like, you know what? I'm going to hang out over here. I'm going to let you hang out over there, okay? I need to back away from fellowship. But I think probably the more realistic thing is that some of these big, egregious sins, both your flesh and the devil, are going to bring those sins back to your mind on a repeated basis. Now, it is, it's sinful, and it should not occur, but it does occur, that a husband or a wife would commit adultery and be unfaithful to their spouse. And we hope, if the Spirit of God is moving in that situation, we hope that they are able to reconcile and they are able to forgive. Uh, now, if there are different circumstances to this and the Lord offers a provision, uh, if it is irreconcilable, okay? But I want you to think about those huge offenses, the huge offenses like that. Those are things that the Lord, excuse me, those are things that the devil is going to continually bring back to your mind, okay? Those are not things that are going to go away. Those are things that multiple times, 
the flesh and the devil are going to bring that thought back to your mind. And it may not be 490 separate offenses. It could be one major offense that every time that thought comes back to your mind, I got to re-forgive them. And then it comes back the next day and I got to re-forgive them. And it comes back the next day and I have to re-forgive them. That's probably more realistic, isn't it? Because our nature is to hold strikes against people and, and then when, when we have another conflict, we always want to bring up the old baggage, right? Well, what do we have to do when we start doing that? We have to re-forgive them again. We have to repay the debt again. Now, let's go to Luke chapter 11, and let's get this language from the model prayer. The more, the more prevalent model prayer we know is in uh, Matthew chapter 6. And actually, actually, before we go to Luke 11, let's go to Matthew 6, um, because there's language in there that I think we need to read as well. In Matthew chapter 6, <clears throat> he's saying, After this matter, therefore pray ye. Verse 12, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. You know, you really have to be walking closely with the Lord to be able to really pray this model prayer in all sincerity to say, Lord, you hold me to the exact same standard that I hold other people. Because that can be a very scary prayer to pray when we're harboring resentment, when we're harboring unforgiveness. And there have been many times in my life that I have not wanted the Lord to hold me to the same standard that I've held other people to. He goes on to say in verse 14, if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Praise God for that. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, understand, this doesn't have anything to do with heaven and hell. It doesn't have anything to do that if you uh, choose to not forgive someone because of an egregious offense, that the Lord is going to say, all right, you've turned your ticket back in to go to heaven and now I'm going to cast you in hell because you were unforgiving. No. What we're going to find here at the end of this uh, parable of the unforgiving servant is in a temporal sense, you will be in torment. You will be in torment. You will be in the judgment of the Lord. You know, there, there are times when people come uh, to the knowledge, we see this especially in the book of Acts, where they've been born again already, but they don't have a knowledge of the gospel just yet. And it, and it uses language that when you, if you repent and be baptized and you believe, if you do that, you will receive the forgiveness of sins. Now, we know when you believe and when you're baptized, that's not when you are purged from your sins in heaven, right? But when you've been born again, and if there's a period of time where you feel a conviction of sin, I think about the Apostle Paul all the time, where he felt that weight of the conviction of sin, and there was a period of time where he did not feel forgiven of his sins at all, did he? He felt convicted, he felt burdened, but then the gospel came and he submitted to baptism, and then he had the answer of a good conscience. But it's at that moment that the forgiveness of sins was applied and sealed to their spirit because they repented and were baptized. So there's a difference between eternal forgiveness and then us feeling the power of that forgiveness in our heart. And we know that in the gospel and in baptism and things such as that. But 
That's the kind of language that he's using right here in regards to forgiveness. If you don't forgive your brother or your sister that has trespassed against you, then you will walk around in condemnation and not feel the power of the forgiveness of sins. Now, you have been forgiven in Jesus Christ, but you'll walk around feeling like you're not forgiven at all. You see? The Lord will remove that assurance from you. And boy, that's a heavy thing. You don't ever want to get there. And I, I don't think that I've ever been there to the degree that Scripture's talking about right here. And I praise God. I pray that I can continue to be forgiven to where I don't get to that point. But it is a horrible thing for a child of God to be walking around feeling condemned and feeling like that it's not an eternal reality. But I feel like if I died today, I would go to hell. That's a horrible place for a child of God to be in, isn't it? And you can reach that level of torment when you are unwilling to forgive your brother or sister for Christ's sake. For Christ's sake. So now in Luke chapter 11, he's giving another account of the model prayer. And he uses this language in verse 4 of Luke chapter 11 that I think is significant. And forgive us our sins for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. And that's what we really need to understand about forgiveness. If it's a legitimate trespass, we're not talking about minor ruffling of feathers, minor personality conflicts that we just need to love one another for Christ's sake. We're talking about a legitimate trespass. When it's a legitimate trespass, it is a debt. And that's the, that's the picture that he gives in this parable, isn't it? These are people that are owing debts. They owe a debt. And when he said that you have to forgive 490 times the same person for the same offense, that means when it comes back to your mind, you have to be the person to pay the debt. Now, every time that we have this offense, we have a choice of who we're going to charge to pay the debt. That's really what this boils down to. Who are we going to have pay the debt of our offense? Now, if we lose sight of what Christ has done for us, it'd be very easy for us to look at someone that has offended us in maybe even a minor way and say, you know what, I'm going to make them pay that debt to the last penny. I'm going to make them pay all of the interest and I'm even going to raise the interest. I'm going to act like a publican. <laughs> I'm going to charge them three times what they really owe. Or, when that thought comes to your mind, instead of saying, I'm going to make them pay the whole debt, instead, I'm going to be the person to pay that debt in my mind and write it off again. That's where the rubber meets the road in forgiveness. Who do you have pay the debt? Because there will be times that it comes back in your mind and you're going to be tempted to say, you know what? They were totally in the wrong in that and I should do something to make them pay. Because we want to have revenge. That's our nature, unfortunately. Instead of those thoughts, instead you have to reach the conclusion that instead of me exacting vengeance upon them, I am going to choose to pay that debt on their behalf. If it's a trespass, this is a legitimate debt, and I have to choose to pay that debt. And that's what 
agape self-sacrificial love is, is all about. I have the right, because it's a debt. I mean, this is not something that is just trivial offense. This is a legal debt that they owe you. This is an offense that they owe you. But instead of me making them pay, I'm going to choose to pay, pay off that debt. Now, why would you be willing? <laughs> and this comes from an accountant. Okay, I don't like writing off debt at all. I'll tell you, people, uh, uh, people run up an electric bill with start with utilities. We make people pay. Otherwise, we cut your power off. We don't, we don't write off debts. <laughs> Not until after about a year if you haven't paid us. But uh, we don't like writing off debts. And you probably don't like writing off debts either. Why? Because that is rightfully yours, right? That money is rightfully yours. And I don't want to write off something that's rightfully mine. Why would I be willing to write off something that is rightfully mine? Because, as the parable says here, there was a time period where you were 10,000 talents in debt. You were the equivalent of, of $15 million in debt. And that doesn't even begin to, to give the appropriate denominations of the, the magnitude of debt that we have against God. I mean, $15 million versus $15 is, is much too small of a disparity, right? Because of the sins that we've committed against God. Why would we be willing to forgive someone and me pay their debt when they owe that debt to me? Well, we have to, as we hope to mention uh, with a hymn to close out today, um, we have to live every day in the shadow of the cross. We have to be reminded of the cross and the great 10,000 talent debt that we have been forgiven in Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 4. And I was looking at that this morning. We don't really have time to get this whole context, but if you, if you start reading a little bit earlier, you'll find, let's say that lying is a legitimate trespass. It is. That's a legitimate trespass and offense. Lying is going to lead in verse 26 to anger many times. And then if anger is not controlled, we're giving place to the devil, verse 27. Verse 29, let no corrupt communication proceed out of it. Well, if somebody's lied about you and you got angry about it, you're probably going to say since things are going to come out that they probably shouldn't. And then, verse 31, we're probably going to get bitter about that. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you. And then in verse 32, be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. And notice, God didn't forgive you because you were worthy of being forgiven, right? Why did God forgive us? For Christ's sake. For Christ's sake. It wasn't because you, as the parable says, he says, I'm willing to pay, I'm willing, just give me an extension, I'll pay everything I owe. He didn't say, okay, fine, I'll give you an extension, but you still have to pay me everything. You no, the picture here is not just, if you'll let me in interject this into the parable, uh, the picture is not that he really just wrote off this 10,000 talent debt. The picture is that there is a elder brother that stands up and says, I'm going to pay that, uh, that, that 10,000 talent debt, right? That's the real picture. It's not just that he says, because God just can't write off debts, right? He's holy. He can't just write off the offense of his holy law. No, there was someone that stood up 
and said, I'm going to pay that 10,000 talent debt. And that's what Christ did on the cross. I love the, the, the picture of, of uh, Christ as he said, it is finished on the cross, John chapter 19 and verse 30. And if you look in that in the Greek, that literally means, that phrase, it is finished, that literally means paid in full. Paid in full. And that's what Christ did. He paid a 10,000 talent debt that there was no possibility of us ever repaying. He paid it in full on the tree of the cross. And then this servant here, back in Matthew chapter 18, what was his response to that? He should have went home and hugged his wife and hugged his kids and says, I've, I know I've made mistakes in my, in my past, but we're going to live differently now. We're going to change the way we treat people because of this great debt that I've been forgiven. Instead, he goes and he finds somebody that owes him 100 pence, and then he goes and he throws them in jail. So they And, and see, that's where he missed the boat. He said, I, I owed this great debt. Somebody else paid the debt. But it had no effect on him because he went out and said, there's somebody that owes me a debt. I'm going to make them pay every penny. Every penny. Now, was the Lord happy with that? Would you be, I, I, okay. Let's just think about this in a natural sense. I don't think any of us have the equivalent of uh, $15 million laying around, okay? But how happy do you think that you would be <laughs> if out of compassion, by the way, I, we don't have time to deal with this the way that I want to. It was because of compassion. It was because of love that he forgave that 10,000 talent debt. It wasn't because that he was had a new business plan. That's what they do in, a, in bankruptcy, right? We don't have enough money to pay our debt. We're going to file bankruptcy, and we're going to have this new plan that we're going to come out of bankruptcy, and we're going to be able to pay all of our creditors. He didn't say, I've got this new plan that I'm going to be able to pay. He had no ability to pay. Why did, did he forgive him that debt? Not because of a business restructuring. It was because of love, right? It was because of the love of of God. And how do you think that you would feel if you found out that somebody owed me $15 million and I, and I had, uh, I was willing to forgive that. And then you find out that they went and threw somebody in prison for 15 bucks. How would you feel about that? <laughs> this ungrateful little punk, right? <laughs> this ungrateful person you know what? I'm going to reenact that whole debt I just forgave. And even the servants, verse 31, his fellow servants saw how ridiculous this was. They're the ones that tattled on it. Because they said, how could you possibly throw somebody in prison for 100 pence after you've been forgiven this 10,000 talent debt? It was so inequitable that the other servants were outraged. So they go and tell their, their Lord. Then his Lord, after he had called him and said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt because thou desirest me. Shouldest not thou also have had compassion, love on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? See, that's the for Christ's sake part, right? It's not because this person is worthy of me forgiving them. It's because Christ has forgiven me, and I forgive them for Christ's sake in the same way that God has forgiven me for Christ's sake. But because you have been legalistic, because you've been harsh, because you've been unforgiving, his Lord was wroth, 
and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you. Now, let's not forget here, this is a conversation directly with Peter, right? Now, it applies to us. Uh, I mentioned last time, I've really enjoyed the, uh, ch- the series The Chosen. I think it's on primarily streaming now on the app. But I- I've loved the, uh, the conflict, which I think is very authentic, very realistic, of the, the uh, personality conflicts between the apostles. It wouldn't surprise me one bit if, if Peter's beef was primarily with Matthew, with the publican, who used to rip him off when he was paying his taxes. But there was one of those 12 apostles that Peter had a legitimate beef with. And I can almost say, uh, you know, the way that this is being delivered, I don't think this is very gentle. and make, It wouldn't surprise me one bit if the Lord pointed his finger at Peter and said, so likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. Now that, you know, it, it was terrifying, no doubt, for David in the Old Testament when, when Nathan the prophet came and pointed the finger in his face and said, Thou art the man. But boy, it gets to a whole other level when Jesus points the finger in your face and says, If you don't forgive your brothers, the Lord's going to have you in torment. But you want to know the beauty of that, though? You will be in torment as long as you do not forgive. But you have the ability to remove yourself from that judgment and torment at any given time. At any time. You have the ability to remove yourself from the convicting judgment of God because of your legalistic harshness toward others. You have the ability to remove yourself from torment at any time. And you want to know how how you do that? Uh, I wanted to make sure I got this phrase. Matthew chapter 18, verse 35. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts, if you from your hearts, Forgive not everyone his brother their trespass. Now, we can tell people the right thing in the right situation, right? Oh, yeah, I forgive you. I forgive you. I forgive you. But listen, it's got to come from the heart. The Lord knows the heart. I mean, you can say the right thing. You can say the right thing. But he knows if you're harboring resentment in your heart. He knows. He knows the thoughts and the intents of your heart. You have to forgive them from the heart. But... The beauty of that is, is when you forgive them from the heart, now all of a sudden, he's going to say, come into the joy of my Lord, right? I mean, he's not going to keep you in torment when you've forgiven him. No. Why? Because now that debt has been paid because you chose to pay the debt. You chose to pay the debt. We don't have time to go over to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We've been going through on the radio, spiritual warfare. And knowing Satan's devices, and in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he's talking about unforgiveness because there's a, a man that was in an egregious sin in 1 Corinthians 5. 
and they were bragging about being tolerant. He said, look, you've got to deal with it. A little leaven leaven at the whole lump. Your glorying is not good. But then the church discipline worked appropriately. It worked just like it was supposed to. He was convicted. He repented. But now he repented, and they were still wanting to be harsh and legalistic to him. And he said, you need to forgive him lest Satan should get an advantage of you, for we are not ignorant of his devices. And there is no greater advantage that Satan could have over you is if, if he can convince you to not forgive other people, right? Because he wants you living in torment, doesn't he? He wants you living miserable. But we don't want to be ignorant of those devices. We want to forgive others for Christ's sake and, and follow the pattern of Jesus and forgive them from our hearts. And I pray that God would give us the grace to do that. We'd like to stand and sing near the cross to conclude. That is number 259. Uh, a few years ago, out at Zion Church in Gordo, I preached, and I do not remember what I preached about. It's funny the things you remember. But in the aftermath of, of me preaching, Brother Chris got up and delivered a, a little three or four minute um, closing remarks. And that, his remarks from this hymn are just so ingrained in my mind. It's funny. There's many sermons that I've sat in in the moment, and they were just powerful sermons, and they've just kind of faded away. But I, I distinctly remember Brother Chris talking about this. And that, that's a Sunday night service. And it's the last opportunity we have for worship before we go back into the world uh, on Monday. And on the, in the third line, it says, Near the cross, a Lamb of God, bring its scenes before... I need to be reminded of the gravity of what has happened on the cross. But this is the, the point that Brother Chris made that, that has stuck with me ever since then. Help me walk from day to day with its shadows o'er me. And you know, if you are walking in the shadow of the cross every day, <laughs> boy, it's just really hard to be legalistic and unforgiving toward your brother, isn't it? If you're walking in the shadow of the cross every day, the Holy Spirit is going to convict you that you're in the wrong, right? When you're living in the shadow of the cross. Because how could I be unwilling to, to pay this 100 pence debt when God has forgiven me this 10,000 talent debt. And I pray that God would give us grace to walk every day with the shadow of the cross over us. Because if we do that, it solves so many problems. And certainly forgiveness is one of them. That if we're reminded on a daily basis of the great debt that we have been forgiven as the shadow of the cross comes comes upon us on a daily basis, then we can forgive others for Christ's sake as He has forgiven us. We thank you for listening to today's message and invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For further information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org.